welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And Cam, what on earth are we doing this week? Well, Scott, we're doing From Russia with Love. I say to you. That's right, folks. It's a sing-along episode. So uh, a one, two, three, four. Yeah, we are going to go back to 1963 and hang out with Sean Connery in the second official James Bond film from Russia with Love. And I want this to be the new shtick going forward is to now sing the titles of the episodes um, whenever we have the opportunity. So, you know, I feel that I ripped off fans the first time around and listeners. So I'll say it now. Golden Eye. And what is it? Tomorrow never dies. There you go. Bam. Done. We can move forward now. Continuity set. (laughs) Speaking of dying. (sighs) (laughs) I should mention, I am very tone deaf. So that'll be part of the comedy going forward as well. Hey, I mean, the listeners are still waiting to hear Janine. You know, when, when are we getting Scorpio? Oh, I have no idea, but it will happen eventually. Right. Well, okay, so we're going back to Sean Connery now. Obviously, since our first episode covering Dr. No, uh, Sean Connery has passed. Yeah, yeah. Um, which we covered in our, our, our Sean Connery episode, but uh, this is the first time we've had the chance to really tackle any of his Bond films and really celebrate what he did. We want to treat this episode as like a raising the glass to Sean. Yeah, that's right. A martini glass, if you will. Of course, shaken and not stirred. Well, uh, <laughs> let's get into the letterbox.com synopsis. Any guesses on the length, Cap? Hmm, I'm going to say fairly punchy and precise, right? I mean, it's a Bond movie that's I feel has a, more direction than some of the others. So I feel like it could be summed up much easier than, say, I don't know, the Fabergé egg plot of Octopussy. What are you talking about? That was so simple. I still haven't figured it out. <laughs> I, I, I'm still double-taking, like the pigeon. <laughs> that's not even Octopussy. What am I talking about? Yeah, that's Moonraker, but that pigeon would not have been out of place in Octopussy for sure. That's right. Well, let's get cracking. From Russia with love. The world's masters of murder pull out all the stops to destroy Agent 007. Agent 007 is back in the second installment of the James Bond series, this time battling a secret crime organization known as Spectre. Russian Rosa Kleb and Kronstein are out to snatch a decoding device known as a Lector, using the ravishing Tatiana to lure Bond into helping them. Bond willingly travels to meet Tatiana in Istanbul, where he must rely on his wits to escape with his life in a series of deadly encounters with the enemy. Well, um, that was lengthy. Um, I feel like I aged significantly over the course of it. That was a really, that's a really, really bad synopsis. That's really long and drawn out. And I mean, who is Kronstein? Like when you're going to throw a name like that into a synopsis, you want to have some description as to who this character is. And I don't feel like Kronstein's one whose name is at the top of uh, most fans, you know, memory. I mean, after reading that, I feel like I want to have a nap in a canoe by the side of a river. (laughs) And the Masters of Murder? Is that a thing that Spectre called themselves? I've never heard that before. 
No, I can't say I have. And the other thing as well, like it's missing two major characters. If you're going to start name dropping people, like you said, like where's where's Red and where is uh, Karen Bay? Yeah, absolutely bizarre. And just the way it sets up with like James Bond is back. That is a F from Cam on the letterboxed synopsis grading scale. Well, we'll use that F with the from Russia with love. Now, this is a funny one to tackle because I didn't... I'm fairly sure I watched this film as a kid and I'm fairly sure I'd seen it on TV at some point. I'd seen bits of it, but I didn't really sit down and watch it until I did that whole Bond rewatch that me and you were texting about a couple of years ago. Mm, Kind of the genesis of this podcast, really. Exactly. And I, I remember the only... One of the texts I sent you about this film was I just said... From Russia with Love was better than Dr. No, and I really like the train sequence. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I, I am curious, when you were revisiting it that, you know, recently when you did your rewatch, did you have a real sense of this movie's stature in Bond canon, or did you just go into it kind of being like, um, here's one of the Conneries, what do I think of it? I'd say it's the latter of the two. I, I didn't know that it was regarded as one of the best Sean Connery films. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, for me, um, I guess I was in the same boat on the side of the of the harbor or the lake or whatever. <laughs> in this scenario, Cam, uh, am I Bond and you're Sylvia Trench, or is it the other way around? I'm silent clapping all the way. <laughs> Loud and clear, buddy. That's right. Um, so, yeah, I was in the same boat. Um, when I saw this film, I was young. I was, boy, 11 or 12 probably. And I was a huge fan of the Roger Moore films. Those are the ones I was introduced to. And I did this spree of going to the video store and getting Spy Who Loved Me, For Your Eyes Only. I think I'd seen For Your Eyes Only probably like seven or eight times by the time I even got around to a non-Roger Moore Bond film. And um, this one was one, I think I was tipped off by my parents, I think, that this was going to be on TV, so I should tape it. And I did so. And I believe this was my first Connery for sure. And I watched it and I was like, what the hell was that? Like just the vibe of it was so different from what I had been trained to see, you know, in James Bond films from all the Roger Moore stuff Mm. that it really, it didn't grab me at all. Um, I think I just kind of walked away shrugging my shoulders being like, I don't know what that was. And it's one that I, did not watch for many years after that initial watch. Like it just really was kind of like, that's not a James Bond movie. And of course now from where I sit, having, you know, studied this franchise for more time than I like to admit, I have a very different take on it. But yeah, when I was 11 or 12, I kind of was just scratching my head. I, I didn't see it in that frame. So I can understand the sort of 11 or 12 year olds take on this film because it is, a slower bond compared to the you know the spy who loved me or live and let die that sort of thing i mean i loved moonraker this was not moonraker <laughs> i mean a couple of episodes ago you professed yourself as a super genius so i i, I don't know what you're going to come out with next to be honest with you neither do i <laughs> <laughs> fair enough um okay so we both had sort of mixed opinions on this film when we originally watched it i certainly enjoyed it when i watched it but i didn't didn't see it with the gravitas that it's held now. Like I, I just saw it as another Sean Connery film, and this was the second one I really watched in the sequence. So, I, I didn't really appreciate it until I got to the later films. Right. I am wondering when you got to say you only live twice or diamonds are forever. Were you reflecting at the time back, going like, boy, from Russia with love was actually quite strong. 
it was around the time I think I watched um, Moonraker and I just thought to myself, I really miss that train. <laughs> Although there's a lot of trains in the Roger Moore ones anyway. There is. Uh, I'm trying to think. Is it uh, is it Octopussy where he's running along the train or is that uh, a view to a kid? Yeah. Yeah, he's running along the train in an octopusy. He's having a fight with Jaws in Spy Who Loved Me in a Train. There's the battle with the villain at the end of Live and Let Die in a Train. There's a lot of trains going on in the Moore movies. What is it with spy films and trains? One day we'll get to the bottom of that. Yeah, in our special on Top 10 Train Movies. Well, I've always said that I have a big mouth. But Cam, you have a lovely mouth. And I would like to hear more from it about how this film came to be. Sorry, I'm a little occupied. I have an assassin crawling out of it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Out of it or into it? (laughs) I think he was crawling out, right? We'll get to that later in the movie. But Mm. this movie really does have a thing about mouths, and we'll delve into that later into the show. (laughs) These aren't just non-sequitur moments of madness coming out of us. (laughs) So so this movie, it began life um, kind of in an unlikely way. The concept of a sequel to Dr. No was always going to happen after Dr. No was a big hit. It was just a decision of which book would be the next one adapted. And interestingly, the decision was made a little bit by John F. Kennedy. Um, He had given an interview to Life magazine where he named his favorite books, and he named the fifth Ian Fleming novel from Russia with love. And so, you know, it got a lot of publicity. Book sales, I'm sure, went up. And the producer said, hey, maybe we should take advantage of this. So they went with From Russia With Love, which I think, you know, just looking at it now was a good novel to follow up Dr. No, because it does feel quite different. The locations feel quite different. So I think it kind of mixes up the franchise and makes it feel fresh and new. Do you agree with that? I mean, in retrospect now, I would say so. But I think when I was watching them uh, chronologically, I don't think I really noticed the change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Terrence Young was returning to direct for, he was the Dr. No director. They had a doubled budget from 1 million to 2 million. And so they were looking at making this a bigger hit. Now they wanted a writer to adapt the novel. And so they went to Len Dayton, who some of you may recall as the author of the Harry Palmer novels, although Harry Palmer isn't named in the novels, but nonetheless, the creator of the Ipcris file, Funeral in Berlin and Billion Dollar Brain, Scott you are a huge Len Dayton fan. What did you think of this decision? <sighs> I, uh, it's, it, you know, I, okay. I've got, I've got lots of things I could say about it, but let's just say I really wish I could shake the shadow of Harry Palmer. <laughs> Does it bum you out that he wanted to set the entire movie in a grocery store? <laughs> <laughs> it excites me. I, I, I can't get enough of grocery stores, especially the tinned mushrooms. <laughs> so it didn't really work out with Len Dayton. And I think when you watch the Harry Palmer films, you can kind of get a sense just from the vibe that they don't quite fit the Bond mold. And uh, he had his own thing going. Everything turned out great for Len Dayton. Don't weep for him. Um, nonetheless, they went back to the writers of Dr. No, Richard Maybaum and Joanna Harwood. And uh, it was decided early on to make some changes to the novel. The novel, for those who haven't read it, very, interestingly, very similar to the movie and also quite different in structure. The first half of the novel doesn't feature James Bond at all. It's entirely about the setup of the um, Smirsh plot 
to humiliate MI6 and James Bond by extension. Um, Spectre is not a factor of the novel. They ended up adding them because they want to avoid kind of the political hotbed of the Cold War. And so the Russians factor into the movie, but they aren't the main villains. Whereas in the book, they are the villains. Rosa Klebb is a, a Russian character working for the Russians in that in that story, as well as Red Grant. Um, but nonetheless, um, they decided that uh, the structure just didn't work because the first half of the book is entirely setting up the plot and getting the wheels in motion. And then when we get to the second half of the book, that's where Bond enters and the plot kicks in and we see Bond basically reacting to all the plans that have been set in motion in the first half. So you can probably see, Scott, that that would have been a little weird for people tuning in for a Sean Connery star vehicle. Yeah, it's not. I mean, you can maybe get away with that mm-hmm. these days in like a franchise piece. But like this is the second outing. It would be like having Iron Man 2 without Iron Man for half of it. And I think people would just. Even at that point, they'd have issue with it, and definitely in the 60s. I think it would work better if you were to make a serialized like TV adaptation or something. Yeah, or, or if you had like some more continuity characters in the beginning, at least. So maybe you had like M and, and Moneypenny and even Sylvia Trench at this point uh, floating around doing stuff as well as not seeing Bond. So you had some mm-hmm. ties to it, at least. Yeah, and so part of the um, changes that were made just in terms of altering the structure was they added Red Grant in the Istanbul sections of the film, even though in the book he doesn't really factor into those at all, just to kind of keep a continuity going, give Spectre more of a presence. And you, of course, have Blofeld material in here as well. That's not in the novel. Um, When it came to casting, they were looking for a young Greta Garbo type to play Tatiana. Which I think is interesting, uh, Scott, having um, recently done Matahari. Yeah, if you're trying to fit the mold of Greta Garbo, I think Daniela Bianchi is, is a great get. Um, how is she described in the book, Cam? Um, somewhat similar, like very kind of a um, little naive, a little shy, um, a little demure. Like she's definitely someone who's brought in to a mission that she's not prepared for. And it has to be very much strong-armed into it by Rosa Klebb. And so you understand, I think, why there is this sort of attraction to Bond throughout the story, because she's in a bad situation and it's not presented as anything other than that. So I think it actually kind of works. I think the casting makes sense. Daniela Bianchi was a Miss Universe runner-up at the time. And she did take English lessons for this film, but nonetheless was dubbed by British Shakespearean actress Barbara Jefford, who would later go on to also dub Molly Peters in Thunderball and Caroline Monroe in The Spy Who Loved Me. Again, classic case of early Bond girls being dubbed, which we will encounter several more times. <laughs> yeah, not a big fan of that, but it, you know, when you were describing uh, the character of Tatiana there being quite sort of shy... Uh, sort of demure and then dragged into the story. It's basically the story of how we got this podcast together. And it makes sense why you relate to this character so much as well. <laughs> That's right. I, the whole time I was being strong-armed, you were, you were circling me like Rosa Klebb. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I did buy you a blue nightie as well, but you never wear it. <laughs> I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> uh, so um, some other uh, casting decisions... Peter Burton was unavailable to reprise the role of Major Boothroyd from Dr. No. And so Desmond Llewellyn came in and history was completely changed. 
I, I was very glad to see him turn up in this film. And I, I kept a list as I was going along of sort of firsts for this film. And mm. the first time we see the proper cue, I would say, is in this film. So that's one of my firsts. Yeah, he feels a little off model, though, doesn't he? Like, it's him, but he doesn't quite have the personality yet. It's more just like direct, like the one in Doctor No. Yeah. Yeah, you could tell that they hadn't quite started writing to him yet. They were just like, come in, give some exposition and leave. I've only read Doctor No, so I don't believe he features particularly in that at all. Is there more of the character no. in some of the other books that you've read? Uh, not really, no. Okay, so the, the Q character is more of a screen creation. Yes, I believe Quartermaster, as he's often referred to, does feature into some of the novels, but he's not really a character, not like he is in the films. I mean, I love everything that Desmond Llewellyn has done in, in all of his Bond films, so I was very glad to see him turn up on the screen. It's kind of like a warm blanket. You're always happy to see him. It's very comfortable. Just like that blue nightie I bought you. That's right. <laughs> Draped in it now. Um, some other staffing issues that were interesting with this movie is that I think a lot of people look at this as one of the essential Bond films, but actually because the production was so rushed, this movie was a 1963 release and Dr. No was a 1962. So they were really putting this one on fast track. A lot of the usual players who participate in these Bond films, a lot of the ones that molded this franchise, weren't available. So like Ken Adam, who's the mastermind behind so much of the art direction of this franchise, he worked on Dr. No, and would come back and do a lot of the big ones like You Only Live Twice and Goldfinger and what have you. Um, he was unavailable because he was doing Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. And um, he had to bow out. And so they brought another guy, Sid Kane. Um, Sid Kane is no slouch either. He would later do Live and Let Die and Honor Majesty's Secret Service. But I think a lot of people, when they think of the visuals of Bond, think Ken Adam. So it's interesting that this one, which tends to rank very highly on Bond fans' lists, is not a Ken Adam production. I couldn't say I didn't notice a sort of continuity between the first two films. I think it flows really well if you watch them mostly back to back. Yeah, I agree. But like you get the weird sets more with Ken Adam. Like I always think of that room from Dr. No where... Um, the guy is being given the um, tarantula and it's yeah. like a basic room, but it feels so weird the way there's that grate in the ceiling. It makes it feel larger than life. Whereas I feel like um, from Russia with love is a little more gritty and street level. So I think it's interesting that Sid Kane also does live and let die, which also has more of a realistic visual look than maybe a Ken Adams set. What street do you live on? that has a giant chessboard hanging on the side. Oh, well, I mean, that's pretty common. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you Vancouverites. <laughs> um, now, Monty Norman was not uh, going to do the music for this film, so John Barry took over full duties. I think that worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the, the music is one of the stronger points in this film, although I, I do have something to say about it later on. And Maurice Binder, um, who does the opening titles of the Bond films, the iconic opening titles, was not available. And so Robert Brownjohn stepped in to replace him for this film. And I think that's interesting because this movie's opening titles feel very Bondian and much more Bondian than Dr. Knows, which are kind of weird and like almost like a kaleidoscope. Mm. This movie feels a little more Bondy. Not quite. We're not quite at the, like the shadow figures yet, but it feels closer. And it's not the guy who really masterminded that whole look. Yeah, I, I was quite surprised to hear you say that, actually. Uh it felt like a natural evolution and obviously I know what comes after this and, and it definitely evolved from this point onwards. It's actually just quite interesting to find out that it was actually someone else that came up with the idea of making it more Bondian, as you say. 
Yeah, I just wonder if the producers really had a vision and they were communicating that well. And when Binder came back, it was just a natural extension of that, perhaps. I don't really know. I would like to look up some more interviews just on the behind the scenes on these titles because they are so iconic. I, I don't think they were trying to be iconic when they did that title sequence. Uh, I think it was just, just to have the sort of theme playing and stuff. But uh, I think it left a, an imprint in people's minds and people expected something like that going forward. Well, they're such amazing mood setters. And I think this one really does a good job of setting up the tone of what the movie's going to be in the locations. Yeah, I would agree with that. And also, you know, it's it's another one of my firsts on my lists. That's right. Because I, I don't personally think that the Doctor No one is really a title sequence, if you will. Well, it's not a classic one. And it has like three songs over the course of it. It keeps shifting transitions between songs it's it's kind of weird i just feel like if you say you only had someone that's seen maybe the brosnans and the craigs um and you sat them down to watch the doctor no one and the from russia with love i think the doctor no one would confuse them they would feel more at home with the from russia with love it definitely feels weird and it has that whole dance sequence with like the animated dancers that reminds Mm. me of the weird dancing sequences in mulholland drive the david lynch film it, it has a similar kind of look and it just feels very weird. It doesn't feel very Bondy. All right, I'll stop doing these dances for you then. <laughs> um, a couple other things I'll just mention about the production. Pedro Armendariz, who was cast as Karen Bay in the, in the film, was terminally ill of cancer during shooting, which necessitated that they reorganize the entire schedule to try to shoot his stuff up front. And his plan was to leave money for his widow. And so he was very desperate to do the production. He didn't want to be replaced. He'd been recommended by John Ford, the great director, John Ford. And he was determined to make it through. There's so many moments they said about shooting this movie that they had to basically prop him up or have boards to kind of just lean him on because he was so ill. And he unfortunately committed suicide on June 18th, 1963, very shortly after this film completed shooting. So... You know, very sad story, but pretty uh, terrific work from a guy who was basically almost doubling over in pain a lot of the time. Yeah, this is one of the bits of sort of the background of this film that I have picked up over the years. And I have to sort of tip my hat to Pedro because you can't tell. No, it's seamless. And they had to double him a couple times with director Terrence Young. And it's something I'd never really noticed, but I actually went looking for it this time. And you can Mm. see it a couple times in the attack on the gypsy camp. Um, but and it's shot. It's only scenes where it's shot from the back, so you kind of can just tell that doesn't look quite right. That looks like it's someone else. But again, I'm sitting there on a Blu-ray, watching it on a 4K TV, looking for it. I don't think it was at all clear to anyone watching that movie in a theater in 1963. And also, there's plenty of times over the years where Bond's been doubled by people, and there's been sort of questionable stunt doubles. How dare you! I think even in our Goldeneye episode, I pointed it out. Our first episode, it was like one of the first scenes of Bond. It's like, that's clearly not him. Roger Moore did every stunt he's ever been associated with. (laughs) He really loved the bridge in San Francisco. That's right. (laughs) He was the only one standing up there. You know, the, uh, they sent a Christopher Walken stunt double, but Roger Moore was like, I got this guys. You can take a break. I need a view. (laughs) to a kill (laughs) and he's going to take a view to a spill (laughs) (laughs) all right um do you have anything else for me on how this film came to be no that's about it for the movie uh in terms of the production but i'll say the box office as i said two million dollar budget 
Domestically, it made $25 million. International, $54 million for a worldwide total of $79 million. This movie was very profitable. Um, for comparison's sake, Dr. No made $60 million. So this is a franchise on the rise for sure. It's certainly not an MIB2. No, no, it isn't. And you know, when you adjust that, it's $264 million adjusted in terms of the worldwide box office. So like, it's not a mega hit, but it is definitely a franchise that is, it's, it's growing. And you know, the next movie out would be the one that would change the game. But uh, this was definitely very encouraging. And when you think about that $2 million investment and the return on that, Holy smokes. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound like a lot these days. You have to really take it into account that that is 60s money. Yeah, where like movie tickets were like 20 cents or something like that, 25 cents. Mm. And yeah, you would, yeah. You, you'd leave your house, you'd play chess on the street, and then you'd go to the cinema, pay 10 cents to watch a film. It's a great day. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so this landed at number eight for the year at the worldwide box office between Billy Wilder's Irma LaDuce starring Shirley MacLaine. Good movie, by the way. And the um, Cary Grant film Charade, which we will be covering at some point in the future. Um, And uh, the movies on the top uh, three that year, number one was Cleopatra, which cleared 57 million, which translates to 615 million. Cleopatra, one of the biggest epic films of all time, starring Elizabeth Taylor. They always said about it, it made a ton of money. And if it hadn't cost so much, it would have been profitable. I, it's such a shame that one didn't make money because it's a film that gets referenced a lot still. I don't know that you'll ever see a bigger movie than that, really. Like, Cleopatra is a massive, massive movie. I don't know that we have many things to compare, really. Only other films that came out around the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could say, I don't know, maybe The Lord of the Rings Project, but in terms of individual movies, those aren't, those aren't as big even as Cleopatra. Ben-Hur? Yeah, Ben-Hur's up there, for sure. That's that same era. You know, Ben-Hur's a few years before Cleopatra. Mm. Cleopatra kind of ends the trend because it was so expensive. You get a few after that, but they don't ever get as big as Cleopatra again for really in terms of those sort of, um, you know, uh, period piece sort of things. Sure. Yeah. Um, Number two was How the West Was Won, which was a sort of a compilation Western film where it was several stories combined, uh, more of, I guess, an anthology, but um, it was shown in theaters across three screens that was kind of the big thing to compete with television you know more of a roadhouse production thing that traveled you know place to place good movie but you know it's not great it's just more interesting for the exhibition side of it and number three was it's a mad 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 world which is a big comedy at the time it's like a two and a half hour madcap comedy really fun i think probably a lot of people have seen it um some other notable things this year way down the list um, you have the Paul Newman spy film, The Prize, which we will probably tackle at some point. And also, Robert Shaw appeared in a movie called The Guest slash The Caretaker, depending where you live. Um, kind of like the Die Hard 4.0 versus Live Free or Die Hard, depending on where you live. That movie made $0.3 million, and it um, is notable really only because it co-starred Donald Pleasance, another Bond icon, and it was a Harold Pinter play adaptation, so I don't think it's realistic to expect it to be in the top three. I think it makes sense that it was kind of a more of a special release further down the list. The only question I've got is, was the UK Die Hard 4.0 or Live Free or Die Hard? You tell me. Okay, what was yours? Because we were the opposite of the North America one. Oh, we were Live, uh, yeah, Live Free or Die Hard. Okay, so we were the ones who were too stupid to understand it was a Die Hard sequel. Okay. 
That's right. right. Well, you know what? I will actually defend. I think Die Hard 4.0 is a better title. The 4.0, it kind of has, has like kind of a computer sound to it. The movie's all about hacking. Mm-hmm. It's not really about li- living free and dying hard. I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess because it's set in Washington, I guess. But I, I don't know. 4.0 is just fine in my book. Wasn't it something about... I know hacking was kind of the main idea, but wasn't it something about like controlling stuff, though? Well, I remember that. It was, I, remember, I remember it making sense, the whole live free or die hard thing. Well, it's all set in Washington, but I think it's, isn't it once again, someone who's trying to, I remember it's all about a fire sale. Um, I don't even remember what the gist of a fire sale was, but it's something to do with attacking the government. But ultimately, wasn't the bad guy once again, just like a crook? It was all kind of just a ruse. I honestly can't remember. The only thing I have to say about that is there's a fire sale. <laughs> Look for our separate podcast, Die Hard Hards. <laughs> and of course, Arrested Development Hards. That's right. That's uh, more of a mini series. But um, <laughs> the last couple things I'll mention was this movie was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Song, the Matt Monroe song. Not one of the most iconic Bond songs, but got a Golden Globe nomination. Did not win, though. And interestingly, this was the final film. For a couple people in their lifetime, um, Ian Fleming, this was the final James Bond movie he ever saw. He died August 12th, 1964, one month before Goldfinger was released. So this was the last one. I mean, he did go out on a high, but it's a bummer he didn't get to see the Bond franchise really explode. He must have seen a, like a preview of Goldfinger. I don't think they would have had one. That movie had such a fast release like schedule is again one year later Mm. so i don't think they would have had anything he was probably on set a couple times but other than that i don't think he would have he may have seen some dailies things like that but he wouldn't have seen a finished product and he wouldn't have known that it was going to be a phenomenon so you know he he went just maybe a year early yeah and uh lastly this was the final film that jfk ever saw he got a special screening of this movie two days before he went to dallas so yeah Kind of a, a sad end there just to the um, behind the scenes and trivia on this film. But uh, there you have it. I mean, two guys that were arguably the genesis of this film. Yeah, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, gone, but not forgotten. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've kind of set the table. All that's left now is for me to throw my trilby onto the hat stand and let's get into the meat of this film. Yeah, let's go. So... We both revisited it. It's been a while since I've seen it. I think the last time I saw it was that sort of uh, sequential Bond watch a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Had, had you watched it? Uh, but obviously, I, I must. you must have watched it at some point between watching it as a kid and now. Oh my God, yeah. I've seen it so many times. And just um, relatively recently, my sister and I did a whole Bond rewatch during the pandemic. So this was one of the ones we watched for sure. Okay, so I'll, I'll let you go first on this one, Cam. You weren't a big fan as a kid. What do you think now? This is a pretty quintessential Sean Connery, James Bond film. What I really like about this one is that it feels very different than the others in that I'm a big fan of Dr. No. I think I prefer Dr. No by just a little bit more so because I really like exotic settings like the, you know, the kind of the Jamaica setting of Dr. No, but This movie, what I really love about it is how it immerses you in the espionage of this world. I kind of like the complications of the plot here where it's Bond navigating between the Russian interests, Spectre interests, um, 
everything that's going on in Istanbul and what Karim Bey is guiding him through. Mm. It just feels like a whole new world and the type of thing we don't really see going forward in the Bond franchise where we go more superhero Bond. This feels like a like a true espionage story and I really love watching Bond navigate it. So for me, it's a movie that it may not have wowed me when I was 11, but just revisiting it the other night, I was just so sucked into it and just all of the characters really pop it feels like one of the best crafted of the Sean Connery James Bond films. I, I can't disagree with you, really. I think it is the, the most grounded of the Sean Connery films. Yeah, I agree with you there. What do you think the second most grounded is? I think it's probably Dr. No. Yeah. Despite the fact he lives on a lair. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Like, you have the whole, like, subterranean lair with giant fish in the windows and things like that. It's pretty crazy, a dude with metal hands. But I don't think... You know, when you look at kind of Goldfinger onwards, they kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. Um, this feels almost like in some ways going smaller than Dr. No. Not really because I think the plot is a little more ambitious, but in terms of just the world it's set in, it feels a little smaller. I think Dr. No just did a lot of table setting. I mean, the book itself is not the first book, but the obviously the film is pitched as the first film. And this film lets you kind of just have a spy story with your character that you already know. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like the funeral in Berlin scenario where the Ugh. first time you're setting <laughs> the first time you're setting up the character in the Ipcris file and then you immerse him into a very kind of tense Cold War environment, um, you know, in funeral in Berlin and kind of doing the same thing here in Istanbul with the Russian interests. I thought it was a really interesting um, comparison point just to have the second entries in these two spy franchises we're tackling currently. I mean, if we are going to compare the two, uh, and I don't really want to, but I will say compared to Funeral in Berlin, this is slightly easier to follow, but you do have to follow it. You do. And it's a movie that I've seen, I'm going to say I've probably seen From Russia with Love a dozen times in my life, you know, give or take one or two somewhere in there. But um, it's a movie that has often lost me with the plot when I just kind of, you know, tune in on a Friday night because I'm bored or something like that. Mm. I really actually enjoy watching these movies for this podcast and that I'm taking notes the whole time. So they really make me focus on the actual breakdown of what's going on moment to moment. And this was one of the few times where I really did piece it all together, could make complete logical sense of it beginning to end. But you are right. It's not a movie that um, – it's not – a movie that completely is going to make sense just to kind of if you tackle it like as a breezy watch. I mean, it's definitely easier, though, than Funeral in Berlin. I agree there. Yeah, it, it it's not forgiving, but it does reward your attention. Yeah, and it does hold together. You can't really poke holes too much at it when it's done. Yeah, and, and you also can't complain that it, there's too many double crosses or anything like that. It's fairly straightforward, and you can mostly understand everyone's allegiances. Which I really do think is a triumph, considering they had to really rewrite this movie on set a lot. Richard Maybaum was on set because of the fast-track production. They were kind of making it up as they went. And somehow they put together, I mean, what could be called a fairly convoluted spy plot, but made it all make logical sense in the end. I mean, it's kind of a miracle, really. I mean, we don't get another James Bond spy plot this involved for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think some people would argue maybe like The Living Daylights, perhaps? Yeah, or GoldenEye up next. Yeah. Be the next yeah. one, yeah. L Living Daylights is, is maybe a good shout, actually. 
Mm-hmm. It's not license to kill. He's not going guns, guns blazing or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, like Living Daylights feels much more of an espionage spy story than License to Kill. Yeah, I, I think this Living Daylights and Goldeneye are probably the, the, the closest relatives, and then mm-hmm. then you start to fall into the Craig era, which is far more serious. Yeah. So, what was your take revisiting it this time? I enjoyed it a lot more. I think going back to it. The problem is I found that like I watched it sequentially and then after that I heard, oh, this is the best Sean Connery film. From Russia with Love is the best one. You're going to love it. It's great. Oh, you don't like it as much. That's weird. Um, and everyone refers to this as as his best film. So there was a lot of pressure going into me rewatching it that I would have to love it. Yeah. But I, I was quite glad that I came out of it saying, actually, yeah, this this is tremendous. Yeah, what I really enjoy about it is the way it immerses you in the environments. Like, it really does exploit the whole Istanbul setting. Mm. A lot of the Bond movies use their locations more just for, you know, sometimes it's kind of just like wallpaper, right? It's like, hey, it's a beautiful location, but don't think that much about it. Whereas I really feel like it's exploiting the Istanbul location and the tensions there for the story, which I think really does a lot for the movie's energy. I can't disagree with that. And I think also some of the set pieces earlier on, um, you know, the the chess game, which is really a, a fleeting scene but it really gives you a sense of what's going on. And there's actually some stakes in the game. Um, and then obviously later on, the, the whole train sequence is great. You know, I like trains. Of course. Yeah. The train sequence is astonishing stuff. You can definitely see the influence of North by Northwest in this film though, just from the train sequence and then the uh, helicopter attack, which is very um, crop duster plane. That, I mean, I, I definitely picked up on that, but I also had a sort of a pull towards the 39 steps as well. Yep. Um, yep. both of them on the run I mean it was filmed in Scotland that last bit uh, where they're on the run from the helicopter and you know that was exactly the same thing that happened in 39 Steps yeah and um, in the novel the From Russia With Love the story ends with them just staying on the train and getting to their destination there's no helicopter there's no boat chase or anything like that and um, e- that's why the North by Northwest stuff feels extra stand out or the you know north or 39 steps for that matter just because of the fact that it was an invention for the script and you go okay well what was popular at the time the bond franchise is known to you know leapfrog on trends so uh this is one of the the uh, earlier cases i think i mean i i have to agree with you that in terms of the the, the sets and the the locations were great but another thing about this film as well is it's Apart from Bond, who is, of course, great. Sean Connery is my favorite Bond. I'm on the record saying it. But all of his backup actors, you know, his the villains and the allies are all fantastic and memorable. It's kind of a murderer's row of a cast. I mean, you have a lot of amazing villains, sidekicks, etc. in the future of the Bond franchise. But this crew is really, really strong. I mean, they they must base some of the future... Uh, villains and allies again off of the performances in this film I, I could almost see them showing like the, the Tatiana and Bond in the hotel room scene to potential uh, Bond girls later on oh I think so too I mean Red Grant the blonde assassin character I mean how many blonde assassin characters do we see in the wake of this movie there's a ton of them go team Stamper <laughs> yeah stamper is a great example there's the dude in for your eyes only mm-hmm. there's one in you only live twice like there's a lot of these blonde henchmen um uh living daylights we referenced earlier there's one in that it, it really does create this whole prototype for a bond henchman character and uh 
the fact that Robert Shaw, I mean, let's be honest, you cast Robert Shaw, you're going to get gold. And I don't think they ever found another actor as strong as Robert Shaw to play a, a henchman really again of this mold. And, um, you know, they were very lucky to get him. Very, very lucky. Leave Batista alone. How dare you? Hey, I like Batista a lot, but he's not really in the uh, Robert Shaw mold. I'm, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm a big fan. You can powerbomb Cam as much as you like. <laughs> what did you think of Connery coming back for his second film? I think he felt more comfortable in the role. Okay, immediately off the bat. Not to say that in the first film he felt uncomfortable, but it was almost like he knew exactly how to be Bond in this film. Like it feels almost effortless. Yeah, it, it's that so like um, that story you told me when we were talking about Doctor No about the whole wearing the suit in bed and it, like it it should fit the man like that this role fits Sean Connery and it also feels like they just have a really good understanding of the character. I still think I hold his performance in Doctor No a little higher just because of the iconic moments. You know when you're talking about. Um, the the card table or the assassination of Dent. Like there's all these sequences that are just quintessential Bond moments. I don't know that there's as many in From Russia with Love, but in terms of an overall performance, it's incredibly strong stuff. I don't know, man. I, I think the whole train fight with uh, Red Grant is again, another one of those things that they use as, as touchstones. Oh, that's true. In terms of like a physical fight, like the physicality that Sean Connery brings to this movie is incredible. Like that entire fight is, that might be the biggest show-stopping sequence of the whole film. Yeah, it's it's my highlight whenever I, I've rewatched it. I, I mm-hmm. it's it's effortless again that we'll use that word. You know, the the way they filmed it, it, it feels violent and Bond feels like a force to be reckoned with. But at the same time, Red Grant also feels like a force to be reckoned with. He is the perfect opposite to Bond. He really is. And they would try the mirror image of Bond several times going forward as well. And we'll cover a ton of them. I mean, we already did one in 006 in Goldeneye. But there's something about, I think, Red Grant is that he has the qualities of, I don't know if I'd say of James Bond, but almost of Sean Connery. Because you think about when they cast Sean Connery, He's this very rough and tumble guy, right? Like he talks about he, how rough around the edges he, you know, he was when he was cast. Mm-hmm. And they had to teach him how to be this gentleman type, put him in the suits. And as you said, sleeping in the suits, learning to kind of adopt this sort of dignified manner. And so you have this kind of this brutish guy in a suit. And that's what Red Grant feels like as well. It's kind of almost a little bit of a meta thing going on. Can, can I make a confession to you, Cam? Go for it. The first time I watched this film... I didn't realize it was Robert Shaw. I mean, that's completely fair. Anyone who's a big fan of Jaws might not recognize Robert Shaw in this movie. Yeah, it was only going back to it. I was like, look, that's Quinn. Yeah, you definitely can see that Robert Shaw changed a lot over not even that long, 12 years. (laughs) I just didn't think I would have seen uh, Robert Shaw walking around in a towel. Yeah, well, I I mean, I hoped. (laughs) Well, we all hoped. It's fascinating. I'm glad you brought that up because in the novel, there's an entire chapter told from the point of view of the masseuse who is like, you know, working on him at Spectre Island, which I want to get to in a second. But yeah, and it's entirely told through this masseuse and how revolting this man is and just how you can just tell there's something wrong with him. Like there's 
a coldness, like a almost like animalistic nature to him. And I think Robert Shaw channels that through the performance, even if it's not necessarily written into the character. You know, no one really talks about him being this kind of a real monster. Someone does refer to him as something like a paranoiac or something like that. Like they actually say that out loud, but it's not, it's not super clear really what they mean. No, they, they kind of say something like he's a, he's a homicidal maniac or homicidal psychopath or something like that. And you're like, okay, but um, he does for me, weirdly, and he's still one of my favorite bond henchmen, but the whole, like uh, putting on that British accent, old boy, it kind of takes away a little bit of the menace. But isn't that the point? It's hiding the menace of that character. He's he's coming across as completely sort of just genial and kind of bland. Like he's, I think he's trying to come across as someone that you wouldn't really look at as being a killer. In that case, he's successful. And, and he does, I mean, he convinces Bond for at least for a little bit anyway. I've always been unclear of that. Does he really? I know I've always been a little uncertain as to how quickly Bond is on to him. I, I'm not sure that, I don't know, like Connery has some subtleties to, to his performance there where he's giving looks to him sometimes. And I'm always kind of wondering how much he's really duped by him. I think he probably has his suspicions of anyone he would have seen on that train station. True. Um, I, I think, but I do think it was the red wine that tipped him over. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Once you can see someone drugging wine, you're like, okay. Oh, you mean the red wine, the fact he drinks red wine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Red wine with fish is just insane. Who would do that? I'm not like a drinker, so that would have skated right by me. I mean, as soon as I heard it the second time around, he's like, oh, the red Chianti. I'm like, what? Ugh. Oh. With soul? Ugh. Red Grant would have snapped my neck and left me for dead. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the Lecter. He's got Tatiana. He's off. What did you think of the Lecter plot? Because I think a lot of the other Bond plots feel a little bigger. Dr. Nose isn't huge, but he's still like interfering with missile launches. What did you think of this whole Lecter concept? I think it was a lot more uh, low-key, but I think that suits the film. And I think it's to the film's credit that they kept that whole thing to this sort of... I mean, it is the plot that drives the film, but by like the time they're on the train, the Lecter feels like the least of anyone's concerns. It's very tough, I think, to immerse people in something of a gritty, realistic espionage situation if the ultimate, you know, end point of the mission is like blowing up the earth or something. You know, like if it gets too big, it pulls you out of that world a little bit. Whereas I feel like the Lecter device, it's a good MacGuffin. It doesn't even matter. We never see it really being used or anything like that. But it's enough that we understand who wants it, why they want it, and we can just kind of follow the players versus caring about the overall scheme. Well, they even sort of set the tone quite early on for the lector when M is talking about it. He's like, yeah, of course we'd like one too. But he's not like, yeah. Bond, I desperately need you to get one. He's not, he's, not, he's not selling it, is he? No, not at all. And it's not like they're using the lector device to again, send nuclear missiles that are going to destroy, you know, a continent or something like that. No, exactly. But I, I think this film needed that low-key uh, MacGuffin, as you say, and it, it does give everyone else the room to play. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Istanbul section, where you have Bond getting this sort of guided tour by Karim Bay and really delving into this world in a way that we don't see him do as much. 
you know, a lot of the other times it's kind of like a quick intro, whereas you feel like he spends a lot of time with Karen Bay and you get a real sense of the vibe of Istanbul during this particular time they're visiting it. Um, what did you think of this whole kind of guided tour through Karen Bay? I, I, I break down the whole Istanbul section into two parts. The bit I liked and the bit I wasn't a fan of. Mm-hmm. I can kind of guess <laughs> how this is going to go, but let's delve into it. Yeah, I, I, I think the listeners can too. But um, the whole like the the tit for tat with the, the Russians in Istanbul, where they're like spying on each other. I thought that was really cool and also very grounded. Because I imagine that's what spy agencies do. Is there like a more grounded moment in this movie even than like where Bond and Karen Bay go to assassinate that Russian dude and he's crawling out the movie poster mouth, uh, referencing back what we were joking about at the start of this episode. And it's just a sniper rifle on Bond's shoulder and Karen Bay just aiming and, and taking like one shot to kill the guy. It, it just feels so kind of gritty and stripped down compared to the types of things you would see, you know, where <laughs> a lot of the Bond villains are getting, impl- you know, like uh, <laughs> inflated and exploded or, uh, you know, flying out the window of a plane or something. Well, exactly. And I think this whole film has this, I don't want to beat it to death, but this film is exceedingly grounded. And I think that is to the benefit of everything else around it. The whole Istanbul sequence just feels like, you would go there and you would meet someone like Karen Bay and he would have that chat with you. Now I have questions about the, the uh, periscope. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know how useful that is. <laughs> I mean, I love the whole journey to the periscope where he's paddling through the water. It's a beautiful, beautiful looking set. I'm guessing. Is that a real location? I can't, I don't think so. Right. Well, seems, I mean, a, a reservoir underneath a town is not that outrageous. Would they be shooting the actors, though, in an underground reservoir? If it was structurally sound, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't. Okay, maybe. Yeah, maybe it was. Um, I just wonder, when I see all the rats and everything, I'm like, I don't know. Were they just, like, leaving these actors with, like, rats all over the place? That seems kind of weird. It was the 60s, dude. True enough. Um, I love the whole setup to that, but you're right. They go and they lift up that periscope. And I'm trying to picture the room that those Russian guys are in. Is there a sound when that periscope comes up that's like, <laughs> like it feels like there'd be a slide whistle as they're raising that periscope? It's really weird. <laughs> I, I I just thought about like the uh, the intel they send back to England. Mm-hmm. Like okay, yep, okay, I've got some intel from Karen Bay. Great. Um, he saw some people in the room. Okay, did they say anything? No, he just has a periscope. Oh, <laughs> right. It's questionable intel, but I guess it's. Part and parcel with the whole spying thing. They, it's a visual, but they're going to have to get the audio stuff later somewhere else. I mean, it's always good to know what everyone has for lunch. Good call. Good call, yeah. Oh, he's not had enough fiber this month. <laughs> uh, but yeah, overall, I mean, I, I liked the that part of the Istanbul sequence. Not so much a fan of the, uh, the gypsy camp. It is a relic of the time, is it not? Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's definitely a relic and should uh, should stay as one. Um, I mean, I I did like that Bond tried to stop the the girl fight as they call it. I I, I don't like how they defused the girl fight, particularly. There's not a lot of ways to really justify that girl fight. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to work it's, my way around it, but no, there really isn't. Is a it is a insane sequence. Like it really is. It's the type of thing that if you were to show 
you know, a young person now, they'd be like, what? Like, what? What is going on? This is insane. It's it's batty. And the book has even more problematic stuff involving the gypsies. Like, Karen Bay has a scene in the story where he talks about how he kept, like, a naked gypsy woman chained to a table for an extended period of time. And then it cuts to Bond saying, like, he realized that Karen Bay was a man, you know, of his own heart that he could really relate to and call a friend. And you're like, what the heck was in the water when this novel was being written? Like, it's insane. I think they're all drinking from that underground reservoir by the sounds of it. No kidding, right? <laughs> like, they were all having the vapors. Like, it's insane. <laughs> so it's like, okay. it, it's definitely uh, it's definitely ugly stuff um, portrayed very cartoony and uh, somewhat xenophobic. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, I mean, pretty it, iffy. Yeah. there's different ways you can look at it. I mean, from the sort of uh, Ian Fleming travel writer perspective, mm. I, I almost wouldn't be surprised if he had been to Istanbul at some point and been to a right. camp. Maybe. And that was his yeah, love letter it, to what he saw. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's a love letter, if it's more just like a fantasy depiction of it. And I mean, the fantasy of a writer in the 1950s who's, um, I don't know, trying to. I don't know, get his kicks out of channeling up the sequence because it, it is in the book and it's somewhat similar. Mm, okay. I mean, it's sort of a throwaway sequence, though. It is something that really doesn't play much of a part in the film. No, in terms of the fight stuff, no. And, you know, Bond getting to choose. I wish we got to see the choice. Like, I would have liked to have seen Bond resolve that situation. But what I do like about the sequence is the attack mm. and how we get the scenes of Red Grant defending Bond during the attack. The actual staging of all that, I think, is fantastic stuff. And I love the locale of it. So it has its pluses in terms of character stuff and plotting. It's just that it has some, uh, you know, relics of the old days, for sure. I The bit I liked about the sort of that whole fight sequence is is Bond, actually. And his sort of effortless movement throughout. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he, he kicks away a leg of something. So then the whole flaming truck runs at some guys. Like it, he's doing the minimal amount of effort he needs to to get the job done. Yeah, and I like that it's the Russians coming after Karen Bay because it makes the plot just that much more twisty. Because you're, wait, is this Spectre doing it? Then you see Red Grant opening fire on a on a Russian agent, and you go, okay, well now I've got to kind of realign my thinking here of what is going on. I like that the movie keeps you on your toes because I think a lot of Bond movies they have overly convoluted plots but it's more like they're trying to overwhelm you as opposed to keep you on your toes. Yeah, this this has a, a certain level of approachability that some mm-hmm. of the other more serious Bonds don't have. What did you think of the introduction of the Tatiana stuff in the Istanbul? Because we see her earlier on getting recruited and brought in before um, uh, Rosa Klebb in a sequence that's uncomfortable, um, I would argue intentionally, because <laughs> I think Rosa Klebb is portrayed as having d- certain designs um, on Tatiana, which is also much more graphic in the book. Um, pretty intense sequence, but what did you think of the introduction of Tatiana into the Istanbul sequence? Of the two introductions you get to Tatiana, I I think I prefer the Rosa Klebb one. It's much more character-based, for sure. You, you definitely get a feel of what she actually is like as a person and that sort of that timid nature that you spoke about earlier compared to when she's you know laying in bed with Bond and you know, all sorts of innuendos are flying around to a man she's just met. Yeah, like the Rosa Klebb material, you understand why she would be pressed into this mission. And look, in these early Bond films we're going to tackle, it's very rare that they're writing three-dimensional female characters. It's 
you know, we'll get that later in down the road. And we've, you know, we're seeing that in the Brosnan ones we're covering right now too. Like they, they do do it sometimes. Um, but in this era, they didn't really expend a lot of effort. But I do like that just in terms of the character of Tatiana, the setup at least gives us some things. Like you see the revulsion towards Rosa Klebb. You see how uncomfortable she is. And you can understand how she really is being browbeaten into this. This is someone from like the Russian embassy who's being sent off to make love to like a British spy for reasons she probably doesn't even really understand that well. Like that's a scary situation. And you do get the sense it is a very life and death situation as well, just given the vibe of Rosa Klebb. It it isn't really like leaned into too much, but I mean, the basic analogy is she's a, she's a person who works in HR who the chief governor has, has given her a call and be like, Hey, if you don't do this, we're going to kill you. Yeah. Like that's, that's a pretty intense threat. You don't really feel that, you know, the second time you see her after that, she seems to be not enjoying herself, but she seems to be, uh, Going with the flow, shall we say. Should we have had a couple moments of conflict with that character, though? Like, just maybe... You know how we've talked about, like, Natalia? How you get a little bit of the story she's involved in before she meets up with Bond? I mm-hmm. think if you're having just a little bit more of that with uh, with Tatiana would have really uh, aided the movie. Like, being able to see her maybe arrive in Istanbul, being given you know the directions as to where she's going and getting a little bit inside her headspace i don't think this was going to happen in a 1963 bond film but i would have loved to have seen it well i I mean let's 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 run this through the thought exercise i have an idea how we could improve it Uh, but uh do you have anything uh go ahead i'd love to hear yours okay um i would just have a scene immediately like proceeding or even joined onto the scene she meets bond but don't have it as promiscuous as her just laying in bed uh, it's not just laying in bed it's running across the room naked <laughs> no you're right exactly so i would just have a scene say maybe they meet in the bar of the hotel or something like that mm, and and yeah. then like you know shaken not stirred you can have that whole you know martini thing and then they go upstairs and she has a moment where she has to like go to the bathroom to compose herself Right. And maybe she has to talk him into going back to his room as well. Like that's part of it as well, because the whole thing is she he's being set up because they want to film this sex tape, which I don't recall that in the book. It's kind of strange and not really not really given that much of a second look in the movie. But uh, nonetheless, it's there. And the whole thing would be her trying to manipulate him into this situation versus just like, I'm in the room and I'm just like fawning over you. It's really strange. Yeah, the, the, it does feel like there was maybe a scene in there somewhere that would would get them from A to B. But it is quite a fast-paced two-hour film. But I, I do think it would have just given the Tatiana character a little element of uh, three dimensions. Yeah, because she definitely gets even more watered down as the movie goes, where this woman is clearly... <laughs> beyond in love many people i know in life are in love they don't fawn over their partner the way that this woman fawns over james bond i mean i i only have that feeling about uh food mostly <laughs> i mean you have that sequence where bond is recording the audio to send to mi6 regarding the lector device and she just keeps interrupting the technical details to talk about like james make love to me again and all this sort of stuff and it's like Oh, brother, this character goes from like, like, I I feel like she's a reasonably smart character, but she kind of turns into an airhead in this moment. And it's more for the convenience of comedy, Mm. which is kind of a bummer because it does take away from the character. I'm sure you could probably track it and say there's a moment where she decides to sort of 
not defect, but to help bond. But like, I, I feel like they did her a disservice in that sense of not making it a more of a progressive arc where you could see her talking herself into it, then falling in love with Bond and then helping him out. Right, or really having that moment of conflict between her feelings that are growing towards Bond versus the fear of not completing her mission and what could happen because of that. I think that would be really interesting as well. Yeah, but th- I mean, this is the sort of thing that say if they remade from Russia with love, heaven forbid. Um, that I think that's exactly what you would see with a Tatiana character. Yeah, yeah, no, true enough. Um, now, I would be remiss if we didn't sort of go through our main cast and just talk about their performances one by one. Yeah. Uh, I, Sean Connery. It, I mean... <laughs> what What haven't we said already? But the guy is Bond. He really is. And... I'm really, really interested to track the progression of his performances because, I mean, he definitely is kind of checked out at a certain point in his run of James Bond performances. I'm just curious where it really happens, or at least where I start to notice a transition, because this really does feel coming off the strength of Dr. No. He is so in the pocket for this character. There's not really a negative thing I can think, like even think to say about this performance in this movie. He's really physically impressive. He's got all the lines. He's got the cool. It's all there. Total package. You you just you buy it. It's as simple yeah. as that. He is James Bond. Um, yeah. And and it's amazing. This is a James Bond film that even the book, as you say, you don't see him till halfway through. In the movie, you don't see him till eighteen minutes in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's a sight for sore eyes when he turns up and you're glad he's there for the rest of the time. Well, Scott, we actually do see him, sort of, in the pre-credit sequence, the first of the franchise, where we get to see Robert Shaw hunt him down. Uh, of course, yes. Uh, that, uh, you know, I watched it on DVD originally and then this rewatch, I have the Blu-rays now like you do. And you can definitely see the whole, like, that sort of white foundation makeup they put on him yeah um but in the first in the sort of dvd version it, i i was kind of sucked in at first oh yeah i mean it is a very good mask specter has created there i mean uh people struggled for makeup nowadays in films the fact that they were creating something so seamless is rather impressive i'm not gonna lead you on can that was sean connery wait what <laughs> <laughs> i mean I mean, wondrous things are going on over there on Spectre Island, for sure. Uh, I'm so glad we get to speak about Spectre Island. First and foremostly, is that not the worst place to work? It's insane. There's just, like, dudes running around with flamethrowers. I'm like, okay, I guess. And then there's a a guy next to him, like, getting massaged on the floor in a towel. It's really set up in a fascinating way. I would love to just have a you know a couple movies set on Spectre Island so we could really get a glimpse of that. I'm bummed we didn't get to revisit that setting again. I feel like, though, you know in the future of the franchise where you get a lot of scenes of Q's workshop where a lot of things are going on at once, I feel like that kind of emerges from Spectre Island where it's all these kind of interesting, strange things all going on around the frame and you're kind of, oh, like, that's what's going on with that guy in the corner there? I feel like that was kind of adopted into more of the MI6 side later on. Hang on. When we meet Blofeld in Spectre the movie, um, not yeah. the first time, but when he actually like confronts Bond 
uh, and shows him the video of, of him allowing Mr. White to kill himself. Is that not on an island? I don't remember. I guess we'll have to <laughs> tackle that when we get to Spectre. I don't remember off the top of my memory. Because I, I imagine that, that's what it might be. The, the, the 2020 version of Spectre Island is just a bunch of guys on computers. Yeah, possibly. Far less yeah. flamethrowers. I think I actually would prefer the, uh, the older version. At least it'd be more fun. Yeah, no kidding. And did you catch that um, Walter Gotell um, popped up as one of the lead Spectre Island dudes who shows up throughout the movie and he goes on to play Gogol, the uh, Russian leader in some of the future Roger Moore films? Yeah, I, I did spot that. And I was sort of puzzled for a bit because I, I was wondering where I'd seen it before. But he does actually turn up a lot on sort of British television. So it could have been that too. Right. I was actually surprised when he showed up at the boat chase at the end because I com- I never had tracked that character through the movie and I didn't realize he was on one of the boats that exploded at the end. Because uh, he's the guy that makes the uh, the worst call in history. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a Spectre specialty. Yeah, well, yeah, true. Hey, there's these things that are explosive. Better stop and check. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the other Spectre characters because a lot of Lenya is Rosa Klebb. Mm. Incredible, right? I, again, sets the template for sort of the maybe not the femme fatale but like well it is rift on again later on it has to be yeah yeah irma bunt in honor majesties is very much like of course. Uh, this character yeah yeah absolutely and then of course the austin powers films kind of riff on her too mm-hmm. i think a lot of lenya is incredible in this movie like she doesn't have that much screen time really other than the scenes with tatiana the scene at the end is the maid. And then those meeting scenes with Blofeld where they keep tilting the camera because they want you to think you're on a boat. That, I, <laughs> such a, it took me so long to figure out that's why they were doing it. You just thought the cameraman was drunk? Or I was drunk. It's also inconsistent because they only do it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that, I, it, that was a strange choice. But I mean, in terms of, of Lotte Lenya's part as Rosa Clip, despite her very short time on screen which is quite bizarre when you break down how long she's actually on screen for. She leaves a mark on this film. Like, she's generally regarded as the primary villain of this movie. She's the mastermind character. Mm -hmm. And yet, when you look at mastermind characters of the other movies, they have far more screen time. And yet, she really does cast a shadow over this whole film. Would you say she is the the, uh, main antagonist of this film? I think so. I mean, you can always make an argument, I guess, for Kronstein because it's his plot that he comes up with. Mm. But just the way he's dispatched, the sort of the the way this character is set up as so like arrogant that he's kind of just so full of himself, he can't really pull off a. a he's he's thinking too theoretically, not on his feet, the way like uh, Rosa Klebb would. Um, I, I think Rosa Klebb is the one who does walk away as the primary villain. Yeah. And then in that case, if you compare it to some of the other villains, she's maybe in the sort of top five or ten. And so much comes down to that performance. It's just so iconic. And you can say, well, hey, we're just going to give this character a shoe with a blade in it. Sure, that is amazing unto itself. But there's something about the performance. And from what all accounts, Lada Lenya was like just a wonderful woman, just very warm and friendly, and had a complete ball playing this loathsome character. And you completely buy it. Like the transformation is so complete. The severe haircut, the wardrobe, the way she lashes out at Bond with like kicking with that blade at the end is so weird and kind of creepy. I just think it's just an incredible villain performance. 
she's believable in that in that scene at the end where like she knows her life is on the line. She's just scrapping with Bond to try and stay stay alive. It feels like she almost goes like animalistic in that moment. Mm. But you know, also to be fair, you got to tip your hat again to Lottie is that she's given this character who has to have has to have these sort of uh, gay undertones that she has to play. Yeah, and you you mentioned them earlier on, uh, and that they're slightly more fleshed out in the book. Oh, it's very. <laughs> Ian Fleming has a real thing about gay women in his novels. Like he really paints them as villainous a lot, and he really amps that up a lot in the story. Like, I mean, I guess you can make arguments about what is actually going on with this character. Whether it's just an entirely a power dynamic thing, mm-hmm. and that Rosa Klebb wants to exert power over um, Tatiana. I mean, that's completely, I think that is actually quite accurate. But yeah, there's much more um, overt seduction techniques being put forth by Rosa Klebb in the novel, for sure. I think it makes sense to tone it down uh, for the film. So if that's what the, the book is about, I'm kind of glad they did it. Yeah, well, the way it's presented in the book, it gets pretty, pretty creepy. And I think the movie, I mean, it's also a product of the time. They wouldn't have been able to go as overt. It would have just not passed the censorship board. So I think it works better in suggestion and little glances and gestures and um, Tatiana's visible discomfort. I think it works there. Because it, I think in a, in a way, and, and I'm not inferring that, um, that that this is a weakness in itself, but I feel like as a character, she is, you know, she's just defected from Russia, from Smirch. Yeah. And, you know, she's trying to prove herself inspector and she wouldn't really want to look weak so if she overly played her hand and professed her love for Tatiana, she wouldn't have that power that she holds. It's definitely not not like a love scenario in the book. I'll say that much. It's much uh, much more brute, uh, sort of brute strength and brute force kind of thing going on in the novel. But you are right. Like she's with Spectre now. She's basically with a new boss mm. versus that story where she's working for Smirsh. So she's much more comfortable in her status within that organization. So that actually makes sense the way they tweaked that there. But I mean, again, overall, Rosa Klebb is one of my highlights from going back to this film. But I I don't think we spent enough time talking about Karen Bay. Mm, Yeah. Uh, He, again, another one of these characters that is in this film for what feels like a long time, but he really isn't. Yeah, and he again, like Rosa Klebb, sets a template. We're going to see more of these sort of mentor, assistant type characters going forward, like Draco and Honor Majesties. Um, Karen Bay is like all charm, and so much of that just comes down to the actor. He just has like a twinkle about him that even though you buy that this guy's a little bit of a loathsome character, probably who's done some pretty sketchy things, mm. you like him and you want to hang out with him in Bond. Well, I mean, how many sons has he got? Uh, quite a few, quite a few. He's he's been a busy boy. Yeah, and there's weird stuff too with like women coming and going from his office. You're like, this dude is definitely sleazy. But he's like, it's it's that it's that sort of glorified sleazy that they had in these films in the fifties and sixties. I would say, but I I think the charm works. Yes, I mean, again, like if you have an actor who's coming across as gross, that character takes an entirely different turn. But there's so much humor to Pedro Armendariz's performance that you just like him. He's just, just the way he like, <laughs> one of my favorite moments is when he walks in and, uh, and Tatiana is like showing off the, the, the outfit that Bond's got her. And he's just like, charming, 
charming. And it's such a weird delivery, but you kind of just like appreciate when an actor goes for it like that and creates this kind of weird catchphrase. I mean, my, my favorite bit uh, with, with uh, Ali Karen Bay is when he just hands over the two girls to Bond for him to decide. And he just kind of like looks at Bond, like, almost like a wink at the camera, like, have fun. Well, Karen Bay seems to be in on some sort of private joke. He's a guy involved in a very high stakes game of espionage where he could be killed at any moment and ultimately is. But he seems amused by it all. Like He kind of understands the absurdity of everything. I kind of like that about the character. Yeah, I, I he just feels um, he feels like someone you would know, like a friendly uncle or something like that. You would just sit around. And he tells you stories. <laughs> yeah, and I, one of my favorite moments is actually right before he's killed when he captures the the Russian agent who's all bound and gagged and what have you. And he sits down. He's like, "I've had a fascinating life. Let me tell you about it." <laughs> you can hear the agent just like, "No, no, no." <laughs> Which I'm sure is how you feel when I start talking on this podcast. <laughs> Just such great stuff, though. Like, I really do enjoy him in this movie a lot. Yeah, I, he's a highlight. And I. Uh, it's a shame that it was his last film. Yeah. But I'm glad he got to give us this. Yeah. Um, we've talked about Robert Shaw quite a bit already. Any other highlights with him you want to pinpoint or anything that jumps out that you that we haven't commented out on, you know, kind of aside from the, the train fight and the, you know, massage scene. <laughs> um, I, I, I did like the sort of cool, calm determinedness that he showed all the way up to the train stuff, which I think that that was showing the mirror to bond, that sort of thing. I really like the train scene where they're at the dining car mm. and he's sitting there with Tatiana and bond hasn't shown up yet because he's investigated the briefcase. And just the way that red grant like springs to his feet. Cause he knows something's up. And then Bond comes in, and then he immediately goes into character mode again of like, "Oh, there you are, old boy. You know, you know, come to the come to our seat, whatever." I, I just love how the way he kind of vacillates between this kind of bland, goofy agent and someone who's just so like stone cold killer. Like, I love the whole sequence where he has Bond at gunpoint as well, and it's just this is a incredibly dangerous man. We're seeing a little bit of the you know evil Spectre version of Bond assassinating Dent in Doctor No there. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I was I was perplexed why he was somewhat distracted by the gold sovereigns. Well, he's a hired killer, so he wants money, I guess. Um, it's just the way they said like the brainwashing had worked, and he was the perfect agent. Uh, and then like Rosa Claire was like, right, send him to Istanbul. I just thought, I, I got the impression that he he's like he had signed up to the Spectre. He he was drinking the Spectre Kool Aid. Yeah. Um. I, I don't really get that either, like, because you'd think he would be a guy who'd just, like, kill Bond and then take the Sovereigns. Yeah, that's the logical thing. It's like, well, I've got you already. Maybe the fact is the writers had written themselves into a corner there, and it was like, ah, this guy's too capable. How do we get Bond out of this situation? Because this guy would just cap him and leave it. You know, (laughs) like, that would be that. Oh, in reality, exactly. As soon as he had uh, Bond on the floor from hitting him in the back of the head, that was it. That was game over. Yeah, yeah. But you got to get that fight, and that fight's so incredible that, you know, it's worth it. I'm willing to take that extra leap with Bond wanting to pay for a cigarette with gold sovereigns, and that's enough to, uh, you know, tip the balance. Considering the amount of leaps we make in future Bond films, this is quite a, a small leap. Yeah, very true. Um, but, I mean, that's it really for characters I want to touch on. Obviously, we have Louise Maxwell coming back as Miss Moneypenny, who's always a delight to see. 
Yep. And Eunice Grayson, final appearance as Sylvia Trench. I know there was talk about maybe bringing her back for Goldfinger as well. They decided they didn't want to have the recurring girlfriend character. I think she's fun here in a very brief bit, but I, I kind of like how this character has a little bit of an edge to her. Like you can understand why Bond does have a recurring girlfriend, at least for a little bit there. Yeah, it would make sense that he has someone he sees when he goes back to London. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I would like to have seen a, a follow up, but I know this is the last time we see her, which is a shame. Yeah, yeah. Um, but is there any other things you want to touch on about the film itself? I've I've got a couple of things I'd like to talk about. Okay, well, why don't you? Why don't we go back and forth? You do one, I'll do one, that sort of thing. Okay. I mean, the score. I think we need to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. There's there's two things. Firstly, I think. Uh, that John Barry is an improvement over the first one. Yeah, I mean, the thing is with the first one, they're working in so much like Three Blind Mice stuff and Underneath the Mango Tree. And look, those songs definitely have their fans. I kind of enjoy them in the movie as well, but they don't quite feel Bondy. Whereas mm. this score and the music choices in this movie, even the From Russia With Love song, which isn't one of my favorite Bond songs, it still feels quite Bondy. So I'm willing to go with it there and yeah the score in this movie is really bang on Uh, monty norman came up with the the bond theme but i think a lot of the other tracks that john barry comes up with and they still sort of get played later on in other films it feels like anyway yeah well john barry comes up with the 007 theme which shows up here right and will pop up in several of the movies i think up until moonraker okay that makes sense but the other thing I want to say about the score itself is, again, and this is something that happened in Doctor No from time to time, it does pop up in some random times. Scott, I love when they play the Bond theme over hotel lobbies and airports. <laughs> it, it, I, I know you do. You said last time. For me, it was just the weirdest thing. Like he's, he's just walked into his hotel room and he tips the bellhop and then... Dun, 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 and What? Why do we need this? And it doesn't. It's not just like a, a quick like in and out. It's the whole bit for like a minute and a half as he walks around the room. But he's inspecting the room. He's looking for bugs. I don't know. It's an agent at work. I'm down for it. I kind of like the music over mundane settings. I don't. I totally understand why people make fun of it, but it's something I've kind of come around on. You, you could say he was inspectoring the room. <laughs> you could, but you would be a horrible human being to do that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing I'll mention is the sequence which I touched on earlier with the assassination of the Russian agent in the movie poster. The movie poster, I've just kind of ignored it all these years, but I always saw it was featuring Bob Hope and Anita Ekberg, which were big stars at the time. So I finally looked up what it was, and the movie is called um, Call Me Buana. Call Me Buana was actually the production that uh, Eon did right after Dr. No and before this movie. So it was a spy comedy with Bob Hope. So I guess we can tackle that in the future. But this poster was basically Eon acknowledging their previous movie. So there you have it. Does that mean that Eon exists in the James Bond universe? Uh, I guess it does. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's world breaking. Huh. Yeah, there you have it. Yeah, There's a James Bond in James Bond. Well, he tells his name to everyone. It makes sense. Yeah. Uh, hey, maybe we can have like in a anniversary Bond film coming up, we can have a <laughs> Call Me Buana reference again. Hey, maybe we've been missing it this whole time. Maybe there's loads of them. Maybe. 
<laughs> it's nothing but call, call me Buana references. Although I don't think they ever referenced Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which was another Eon production. That's strange. You think they would? Yeah, I know that movie was much uh, like a much bigger deal than Call Me Buana. Yeah, uh, I just remember thinking about that whole side of the house as like a joke. But now you're telling me, okay, it makes sense. I don't know why they've referenced their own film though. Yeah, uh, well, it was still early in Eon's careers. You know, maybe they were like, "Good for us, we made a film." That's right. And yeah, the only other thing I wanted to sort of mention was the list of I wrote down the firsts that this film has. Because mm-hmm. um, we we said when we spoke about Doctor No that, that that film really set the template. But there's a lot of things that that film didn't do. Yeah. Um, so what I got down, you can tell me if I'm missing some. Uh, I got the first gun barrel. Um, the gun barrel is at the start of Doctor No, but it's 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 not the it's not set up the way this one is. Yeah, that, that's how I. Okay, so I'm off on a rocky start, uh, but bear with me. Bear <laughs> with me. Uh, the first sort of cold open scene. Yeah. Uh, it definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then the first sort of title sequence. In a Bondian style. Yes, agreed, yeah. Right, okay. So I, I've got one definite yes and two maybes. Um, <laughs> the first time we see Q properly. Yep. Um, the first actual theme song. Yep, for sure. Because like Mango Tree and Three Blind Mice were not made for Dr. No, as far as I'm aware. No, I don't... I'm trying to think if Underneath the Mango Tree was a hit song before or after. I don't know. But yeah, like those aren't really considered Bond songs. So you're right on that one. Okay. Um, the first proper gadgets. Yeah, yeah, no, that's accurate too. Um, so the suitcase was a pretty cool suitcase, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last one was sort of the first proper henchman. Yeah, that's actually very true because you have Dent in Doctor No, but he doesn't really count as a as a big henchman. I guess you can say the three blind mice, but so little attention is kind of paid to them as characters that I, I you can kind of give or take that one. They're not really like Winton Kid level of. Of like group henchmen or anything like that. No, and the way they're dispatched too, you barely even know they've died. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't they just sort of chase Bond later on in the film and then go off the side of a mountain? Yeah, but they don't really emphasize that it's the three blind mice that have died. You're kind of like, you kind of do the math. Okay, I think one of them was driving, so I guess they were all in the car at the time. You also okay, sort of barely sure. see their faces as well at the beginning. Yeah. So yeah, I so I'll stick with my list. How how do you think I did? I think you did really well. Um, I don't know that I would have added anything. Um, yeah, I mean, no, I think that pretty much nails it. Uh, I guess it, maybe the first look inside of Spectre, where, you know, Dr. No is a Spectre agent, but we didn't get a good look at what goes on with Spectre, whereas here um, you get Blofeld. So oh, there yeah. You have yeah, it. first Blofeld, you're right, and first Spectre. Um, yeah. Okay, that, I, that's a pretty solid list of firsts. And I, and I think this is generally the template going forward yeah it is and i have two little things i'll touch on one really cool and one that made me laugh out loud so the the cool one is just that scene where bond's outside of the train walking and grant is trailing him from inside the train i love that shot Mm -hmm. i love it i love it i love it it's amazing it's so cool the bit that made me laugh out loud is the gypsy camp leader yelling thank you (laughs) Is that after Bond saved his life? He does it twice at the, you know, the, whatever, the dinner or whatever, before the fight, mm. where he says, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and then Bond, um, you know, saves his life during the gypsy camp thing, and you hear the guy go, thank you. 
And it's so clearly overdubbed and it's this bizarro like line delivery and I love it and I'm so thankful it's there. Yeah, it's such a bizarre choice. I don't. I, I remember the second one where he saves his life. I didn't really remember the first one, but uh, I, I don't know where they like. Did they say I'll oh, just come up with like a gypsy sounding thank you or something? Where did they get that from? One of my favorite things about Bond movies is that they go insane in moments, mm. and uh, you know, there's moments throughout Doctor No we were kind of laughing about, and I love that this movie still has them. It's a more serious minded Bond film in some ways, but it still has those little bursts of insanity, and that thank you is one of them i would agree I, I i think it's a shame we haven't got anything on the level of uh dr no as a monkey but i think this film is so grounded that we wouldn't really have that no there's nothing in the source material as well that would you know inspire you to take those kind of flights of fancy hmm. but i i think that probably leads to it being a better film overall i think i for me i still think i kind of prefer dr no and a lot of that's just the setting the dr no villain character I think that one grabs me a little more. But, I mean, again, I'm kind of like, gee, which masterpiece do I prefer? You know what I mean? Yeah, I get you. Well, I think that leads us really well onto the the question. And that is, does From Russia With Love make the knock list? Um, and, and and also, does it, does it beat Dr. No? <laughs> I can't answer that one. I think that's up to the individual listener. Mm. Um, my, my answer is that, I mean, I love Dr. No more. And when you have the one that introduces the character so well, uh, it's kind of hard to argue against the one that does it so perfectly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like It's kind of like the great movie sequel versus the originator. So I don't know. I think a lot of people have very strong opinions about either one. Um, I think what's important, though, about why I feel this one belongs in the knock list is that it is a perfect sequel and it's taking all the elements you loved from the first one, bringing it to an entirely fresh feeling story, but also doing it in a way that does feel different. It is that immersion in espionage that you don't really get as much of in Dr. No. It has that gritty feel to it. I completely understand why a lot of Bond fans to this day will still be like, why can't we get more Bond films like from Russia with love? It is because it does feel somewhat different so when i say yes it's not because it's just another great connery bond film it feels special in a lot of ways and we're going to be doing goldfinger as our next connery um i'm not going to say which you know whether i feel that belongs or doesn't but it feels very different than from russia with love this one does feel very unique within the connery movies and for me it is a slam dunk for the knock list i i had a feeling you were going to say that um, and I don't think you have to guess too much about my answer is. Um, it For me, it has to be a yes. It, it can't have all of these firsts and not make it on the list because I know there's other Bond films down the line that lean on this film. Well, no, not, I mean, not to mention we've got Sean Connery firing on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, as you say, a litany of, of bad guys that are, are memorable. It's interesting in that Goldfinger is the one that I think influenced a lot of the franchise going forward in the 60s. Mm. But I I feel like nowadays, especially with the Craig era, they're looking more at From Russia with Love. I mean, there's not many Bonds that have had video games made of them 30 years after they came out. Yeah, no kidding, right? And you'd think they would have done Goldfinger, huh? Yeah, far more of a, an interactive story. I mean, they did sort of flesh out the story a bit in the video game. I don't know if you ever played it. 
No. Um, they added some bits. They added like some stuff from the other films, like the jetpack and stuff like that. But mm. it's just such a a solid. I I, I think I'm actually going to take this uh, this 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 word off. It's not just a solid Bond film. It's a solid film. Right. It doesn't even the, the Bond part's not even that big of a part. I feel like you could show this to anyone who appreciates spies or spy films. And that's why I think it's a yes. I think it's just a solid movie that could go up there against a lot of the greats. Well, I think if you were to, you know, say to a spy fans, what are the great spy films? If you're going to hear a Bond movie brought up, I feel like it's this one. Yeah, it's probably this one or Casino Royale. Yeah. Not to show my hand for Casino Royale whenever we get around to that, but... <laughs> that's a waste down the road. They'll forget by then. Who? <laughs> Plus, we'll have a real twist when uh, <laughs> when we say it, it didn't make the knock list. <laughs> womp womp. Uh, but yeah, it, it, for me, it I I don't think I could uh, I don't think I could live with myself if From Russia with Love didn't make the list. So we have plenty of love for From Russia with Love. We certainly do, or with love from Russia, if you're the way Bond writes it down. In the knock list with love. That's it. That's it. It's the Yoda version. That's right. There you have it, folks. From Russia with love is deservedly on the knock list. And the dossier on this film is complete and marked as classified. Cam, what have we got coming up next week? We're going back to 1946 to hang out with Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, and Alfred Hitchcock for Notorious, one of the... uh, really legendary Hitchcock films. I'm very excited about this one. And I am notoriously a fan of Cary Grant. So I'm very much looking forward to visiting this film for the first time. And uh, well, a couple of films ago, you bought a family member with you, Cam, and I'm going to bring a family member with me next week. I'm very excited for this. It's going to be a fun show. So From Russia With Love has joined the knock list. If you want to find out more about the knock list, you can head over to letterbox.com slash spy hard which has all the films we've covered so far the ones that made it and the ones that didn't and if you want to find us on social media you can look us up at spy hards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s where you can follow us discreetly on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners thank you